Zdrasi Tavarishi, Dobro Pajalovat Sad Power. I'm Roberto. And I'm Brendan. And together, we're ranking the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin to see who gets to party it out in the Kremlin or get shipped off to the Gulag. This week, ruler number 14, Vladimir Monomak. No! Sviatopolk 2! Oh, okay. This week, ruler number... Wait, is it 14 or 15? 14. This week, ruler number 14, Sviatopolk II. And before we jump into today's episode, we want to let you know about the Hellenistic Age podcast. Hi everyone, my name is Derek and I'm the host of the Hellenistic Age podcast. The conquests of Alexander the Great and his successors saw the dominance of Greek culture across much of Eurasia for over 300 years and is one of the most exciting periods in all of history. Our journey will cover topics such as the daily life of Greeks and Egyptians living under Cleopatra and the Ptolemies and the relationship of Buddhism and Hellenism in the Greek kingdoms of India. Check out the podcast through my website or on any podcast platform by searching Hellenistic Age Podcast, and I hope to see you soon. I've really enjoyed listening to their podcast, and Derek has given me much inspiration for my D&D game through his content. Also, it's nice hearing about the Seleucids and my golden boy, Seleucus I. Alright, Brendan, what is the recap of last episode? It's been a while since we recorded. Yeah, here's a recap. Visvalod didn't do anything. There you go. There's your recap. I mean, he's not wrong. There's a reason he's in the gulag. He did a fat lot of nothing. He surrendered at first in order to willingly give up the crown of the Kievan Rus to his brother Isyaslav, I believe. Was It was Isyaslav, yep. right? Correct. Because Probably because he knew that he would lose in battle. So, what he did instead is he bided his time until Isyaslav died in battle. And then I think, what, did it pass to him or did it pass to his son it, and then he took it, it from It passed to him. It t- passed to him. Yeah. Yeah. And it directly passed to him as he was one of the sons of Yaroslav, a.k.a. the Yaroslavichi. Who are now all dead. Yeah. Finally. I know. Well, actually, <laughs> come to think of, I mean, also, like, of the one, two, three, four, five, six Yaroslavichi, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven... 12 sons altogether, so 12 grandsons of Yaroslav the Wise, and 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 great-grandsons of Yaroslav the Wise, all of whom, in one way or another, featured in the actual story. I'm pretty sure he had... There's more, because we're also not counting daughters, but that is everybody in the family tree Roberto gave me, and they are in the family tree because they actually had a part to play in the story. Yeah, so... You see all of those names <laughs> yeah. next to Sviatopolk 2? Uh, yeah, to the right of Sviatopolk 2. Gleb, David, Roman, Oleg, Yaroslav. Yeah, to the left and to the right and also below. Because Sviatopolk also had kids, but we'll get into that. Yeah, all of those are appearing in today's episode. Yeah, also, so Sviatopolk. Sviatopolk. Svevolod. Svevolod, he, yeah, he also had a son, Vladimir Monomak, who I thought was today's ruler. I assumed he was the ruler because he was Svevolod's son, but I guess not. We'll get into that. <laughs> he was a better fighter than his father because he went out and he won a lot of battles for his father. This was kind of Svevolod's thing. I mean, I, I don't think it's harder to be a better fighter than Svevolod. Yeah, it, it's it's true. Really not all that difficult. If you go, if you take one boxing class, you are a better fighter than Svevolod. Remember, Yaroslav loves Svevolod for his meekness. <laughs> and yeah, he also had a, he also had a daughter that did interesting things. 
Yeah, his daughter was way more interesting than him. And she and she popped up for like three paragraphs. So, well, that's it for the recap. Which, you know how interesting because she is, because I already forget her name. Yanka. Yanka. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Now, yeah. actually, I sh- it should be easy to remember the name Yanka, but I guess not. Well, would you have like a ton of names in a family tree in front of you? I do not blame you for forgetting her name. The only woman in the family tree is Olga of Kiev. This is the woman that matters. Yeah. Well, and I say this drinking a nice mug of ice cold kvass because I'm feeling very Russian today. Is it that same bottle, or did you already finish? When I was there, did you already finish it? It's the same bottle. I don't think so. How how gone is it? It's halfway gone. Kvass is a it's an acquired taste. I love it. I, um, yeah. I well, should see if there's a. I need to find a Russian grocery store near me. No. There is. There is. Okay. It's on the other side of the river. That's not that far. No, it's like a half hour from your house. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've no, because I've been there. <laughs> well, alrighty, let's get into Sviatopolk's life. So Sviatopolk II was born on November 8th, 1050, to Izislav I and one of his many concubines. While he was growing up, he had quite a few older brothers, and no one thought that he'd ever be in line for the Kievan throne, so he wasn't trained in the ways of ruling. After that, he goes pretty dark in the Chronicles. We hear from him again in 1069 when Izyaslav, the Grand Prince of Kiev at the time, gives him the throne of Polotsk after taking it away from Sieslav the Sorcerer. This occurred after Izyaslav returned from Poland to reclaim Kiev. However, the reign in Polotsk didn't last long as Sieslav kicks Sviatopolk out of Polotsk in 1071. In 1078, Izyaslav granted Sviatopolk the throne of Novgorod, where he ruled about 10 years, and afterwards was moved to Turov after the death of his brother Yaropolk to reign there instead. During this time, he married a Bohemian princess by the name of Barbara, and together they had a total of three children, Yaroslav, Zbislava, and Predslava. That's pretty much his early life. In 1093, Grand Prince Sievolod I died after a bout with sickness in Kiev. His firstborn son, Vladimir Monomach, looked to be a shoo-in for the throne, exactly as you thought, Brendan, especially after he had spent the later years of Sievolod's reign taking care of Rus. However, he had a reflective moment and thought that if he, that if he took over, uh, Rus would fall into a cycle of civil wars all over again as the sons of Izislav and Sviatoslav would attack him for the rights to the throne. So he decided to forego any chance of that and instead told Sviatopolk that he was a rightful claimant to the Kievan throne as the eldest living son of Izislav. So Moromak pretty much gave up the throne. He could have had it for longer. Hmm. Why? We'll talk about that in his episode. <laughs> okay. With that, Sviatopolk arrived from Turov and took his seat on the Kievan throne. Uh, with Vladimir Monomach taking the throne of Chernigov and Monomach's younger brother taking the throne of Pereslavl, which was Sievolod's throne. That younger brother is Rosislav. Now we have a new triumvirate controlling the principal Rus cities. There was no bloodshed on ascending the throne and all was calm in the land. Ha 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 ha. That's a good one, Roberto. <laughs> well, <laughs> you laugh now, but this changed when the Cubans attacked. the four nations lived in harmony and then the cumans attacked that's literally the joke i was going for (laughs) a group of cuban horsemen passed over the border and began raiding many of the towns around the lower dnieper river during their raids they had found out about the death of sievolod and ever so kindly sent some envoys to kiev to make peace propositions to sviatopolk 
the envoys arrived in the city and pleaded their case for peace to the Grand Prince. While this occurred, on one hand, Sviatopolk's entrenched advisors, those who had served Izyaslav and Sievolod, told him to accept the deal they were making, as it would stop the raids from escalating to a war. On the other hand, Sviatopolk's retainers told him to imprison the envoys. Can you guess who he listened to? I think he imprisoned the envoys. Yeah, he broke that cardinal rule of not shooting the messengers and figuratively shot them by putting them in prison. When the Cumans heard of the arrest of their envoys, they became increasingly livid. They mounted their horses, and instead of raiding along the border, they raided deeper into Rus territory. The raids had turned into a full-blown war. The Cumans aimed straight for Kiev and laid siege to the town of Torchesk, which was located in the south. Sviatopolk, seeing how he had messed up diplomatically, attempted to make amends with the Cumans and release the envoys back to them. Of course, this did not work, as the damage had been done against the nomads. The attacks just continued with a renewed vigor against the Rus. Sviatopolk gathered his men for counterattack, but his entrenched advisors warned him that attacking the Cumans with his current force was only asking for a defeat, and that he instead should sue for peace. Sviatopolk did not heed them once more, and said that his 800 men could easily withstand the Cuman horde that was entering his fiefdom. Sviatopolk's revenue pushed for war as they urged him to fight and that they could easily prevail against the Cumans. The advisors then brought up another important fact. Kievan Rus was broke. <laughs> they were impoverished by the wars that the Yaroslavichi had put them through, and all the taxation efforts that they had done had not brought on enough income due to Sievolod's poor mismanagement of funds. Instead, if he wanted any chance of survival, he should go ask his cousin, Vladimir Monomach, the prince of Chernigov, for his assistance in defending the land. Sviatopolk had no choice but to listen to his advisors and sent Monomach a request for assistance. Vladimir Monomach agreed to help his cousin fend off the Cumans and enlisted his brother Rosislav, prince of Periaslavl, to aid them in their endeavor. Like their fathers before them, this new triumvirate would go out together and face off against an incoming nomadic horde. The trio met at the Vidupetsky Monastery, and between the three of them, managed to resolve any issues that they had with each other for the time being. To seal the deal, they made an oath and kissed the cross. Then the time came to decide what was to be done with the Cumans. What would be the triumvirate's goal? Would they go and ask for peace? Or would they instead go and attempt to stamp out the threat to Rus once and for all? Vladimir and Rosislav wanted to sue for peace as quickly as possible. Sviatopolk, however, wanted to attack them immediately and break their forces. His Kievan retinue had been sporting for a fight for quite a while and added pressure to the other two princes' armies to do the same. In the end, the overwhelming message was to have a full-on war. While this occurred, the Cubans continued raiding and pillaging Rus' territory. Sviatopolk, Monomach, and Rosislav marched towards Trepel, a town 30 miles south of Kiev along the river, and arrived at the river Stugna. Once the troops were rested, they crossed the river during its peak swell. What a grand time to do such a thing. On the other hand, with their troops amassed and now drying in the sun, the cousins decided what to do. They divided their forces into three, which made sense since there were three of them, and decided that Sviatopolk would command the right flank, while Monomach and Rosislav commanded the left and center flanks respectively. The Cubans had sent forward scouts and knew of the prince's arrival 
and had arrived with their horsemen. The Rus entered into Trepel and armed the ramparts to begin the defense of the city. The battle had begun. It was an extremely bloody battle, and the Rus came out to fight the horsemen while using the ramparts for their archers. However, the ramparts were breached by the Cumans, and the Rurikid standards were dropped in favor of the Cuman ones. While this occurred, the right flank was attacked, and Sviatopolk and his men fought valiantly. As the Rurikid banner came down, the Grand Prince's forces dropped their weapons and fled the battlefield. Sviatopolk continued fighting, but seeing as his forces dwindled, he himself fled and went back into Trepel, where he barricaded himself behind the sturdier walls of the inner city. He had left Modomak and Rosislav alone. They continued the battle, but were overwhelmed and had to retreat over the Stugna River, with Rosislav drowning in the process. The battle was over, and in the cover of night, Sviatopolk made his way back north to Kiev. What a great battle. Uh, no comment. After the death of Rostislav, Aliyek Tatoslavich went to Vladimir Monomak with some Cuman troops and tried to take Chernigov from his cousin. Monomak, knowing his weakened position, gave Aliyek and his brother David, Chernigov, while he moved back to Periaslavl. With Aliyek now in power at Chernigov, the original triumvirate was now fully restored, with Izislav's son ruling Kiev, Sviatoslav's son in Chernigov, and Sevolod's son in Periaslavl. Everybody's in the rightful place. Everyone has their inheritance. The Cumans, fresh off of their victory over the Rus, then moved to the town of Torchesk and besieged it. The Torks, as they are so called in the Chronicles, that being citizens of Torchesk, resisted intensely as they did not want to capitulate to the nomads, and with the defeated princes saw no way that they could get help immediately. Through a series of well-placed arrows and sorties here and there, they were able to place massive damage against the Cumans, but these attacks only furthered Cuman aggression, and the siege was pressed harder, and the water supply was cut off from the city. As the days continued, food and water reserves dwindled, and the Torks were beginning to fade away from hunger and thirst. They sent many messages to their Grand Prince, begging for food supplies or even reinforcements. Sviatopolk sent what assistance he could downriver, with supplies to aid them through the siege, but these were intercepted by the Cumans, and the Torks' plight continued. Nine weeks had gone by, and the Torks suffered intensely. The Cubans figured out that they didn't need all of their forces in one spot doing nothing, and decided to send half of it to go out raiding the towns and villages surrounding them. The force started raiding all the way up to Kiev with their multiple raiding parties, which forced Sviatopolk to bring in a new set of troops to fight the Cumans. He challenged one of the raiding parties. They met in battle, and it was quite fierce. The Rus lines were broken once more, and even more men were killed here than at the battle at Trepel. Svetopolk was reduced to two men as he made his way back to Kiev, and the Cumans decided to rally back to Torchesk. By this time, the Torks were all but defeated. Their supplies were at the last limit, and fearing absolute death, they surrendered. The Cumans took the city by storm, captured and divided the inhabitants amongst themselves, and burnt it to the ground. With two defeats and the raising of a city, Svetopolk was officially forced to make peace with the Cumans. This led him to marry Chief Turokhan's daughter, as his wife Barbara had passed away at some point between ruling Turov and Kiev. Turokhan's daughter was baptized as Aliena. A few months after the Rus' defeat, the Cumans sent two new envoys, this time to Vladimir Monomak in Periaslavl. Without going into much detail, since we will cover it in a future episode, hint hint, Vladimir ordered these envoys killed, and the peace with the Cumans was shattered. <laughs> these cousins really do not help each other out, do they? Yeah, uh, I guess you could say that. To prepare for this new war, Sviatopolk and Vladimir Monomak invited Aliyek Svetoslavich to join them in the war against the Cumans. 
Aliag promised to assist them, but decided to not go along the same path as his cousins. We will cover Aliag as a bonus episode. Sviatopolk and Monomak were able to go into Cuban territory and capture their encampment, and took many cattle, horses, camels, and slaves to return home with. The battle went quite well for them this time, and on their way back, they talked amongst themselves and how upset they were at Aliag for not attacking the Cumans alongside them. So, as the ever good diplomats they were, they sent him this message, quote, You did not accompany us upon our attack against the pagans, who have brought ruin upon Rus. You have a son of Itlar at your court. Either kill him or deliver him up to us, for he is an enemy of Rus. End quote. Can you guess what Aliag did? Okay. Aliag. So, so far, is he done? Hold on. Okay. So he's the son of Sviatoslav. He's the one who, what? Took over to Maturikhan. He fought against Sievolod and Izislav. And he was um, the other commander against them that in the battle that Izislav died. Um, he took over to Maturikhan. And now he finally has Chernigov. Hmm. Uh, did he immediately lose it in battle? No. Well, against Izislav, yes. But mm-hmm. but he, he got, he, he this time he just traded territories with... um. Vladimir Monomak. Ah, interesting. Okay. So he has Chernigov again. So can you guess what he did in response to uh, Sviatopolk's and Monomak's message to him? When he when they asked him to um, kill kill the son of Itlar, a Cuman, or... I, I think he invited him to them to his tent for a civil discussion on the matter. Oleg ignored them. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is way better. He's like, nah, man. I'm not responding yeah, to you guys. It's a true neutral response. But despite the Rus taking the Cuman encampment, the Cumans wanted retribution for having lost an encampment and came back to Rus and besieged the town of Yuryov. The town was besieged and basically made next to rubble and ready to surrender by the time Sviatopolk was able to beat the Cumans away from it. Uh, because of this destruction, Sviatopolk had to relocate the citizens to a hill on the Vidichev River and help them build a new town there. Once Yuryov was empty of inhabitants, the Cumans returned and out of pure spite, burnt it to the ground, and that is two cities gone. Ah, they'll build another one. Oh yeah, absolutely. Sviatopolk and Monomak came together to discuss the best course of action to deal with the persistent human threat, and as part of the power-shaving agreement, invited Aliyev of Chernigov to join them in Kiev. The three of them were the most powerful princes of the realm, and it was to Sviatopolk's and Monomak's mind that they needed to work together to ensure the safety of the Rus. Uh, they added to their message to Aliyev that this meeting would have other princes and even bishops in attendance so that everyone could have an input. But Aliyev decided that this was still not to his liking and he had no reason to leave Chernigov to join them. <laughs> I think he's based. Yeah. Like he, he's like, yeah, nah, bro. I'm not leaving this place. I know what you guys did to me last time. <laughs> However, Aliyev's paranoia proved to his detriment as it led Sviatopolk and Monomak to believe that Aliag was more than willing to ally with the Cumans against his cousins. And you know what? I don't blame them, because Aliag has repeatedly hired the Cumans to promote his own claims on Chernigov, and has attacked his cousins and uncles repeatedly. Hell, he even hired the Cumans in the middle of a war against them, just to get Chernigov from Monomak. It's like, a, it's like Fredo, it's a very Fredo and the Godfather situation. He's, he's Fredo, but actually, like, useful. <laughs> yeah. And it's also, like, betraying the family openly, not so, not secretly. Spoilers for The Godfather Part 2, directed by uh, Francis Ford Coppola. And and starring uh, starring Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. Uh, so yes, Yatopok and Monomak were justified in their thinking 
which led them to launch a joint attack on Chertigov against Alieg. Alieg had been in this position before, and Monomak had had this battle before. Uh, Alieg, you know, this time not being dragged by Boris Vyacheslavich's poor decisions, fled from Chertigov as he knew a losing battle when he saw one. So the tactical retreat. <laughs> uh, fleeing from Chertigov brought Alieg to the town of Starodub, and he barricaded himself within its walls. Sviatopolk and Monomak laid siege to the city, and the inhabitants of Sarodup decided to protect the Lieg and sallied forth to repel the besiegers, and actually inflicted damage to them, but they had lost many of their own citizens in the process. This siege lasted for 33 days, and the inhabitants grew wary from hunger. Lieg sued Sviatopolk and Monomak for peace, and this was granted, but only if Lieg could be joined by his brother David in Kiev. He agreed, and in a few days, David and Alieg Sviatoslavich were in Kiev, and the treaty between Sviatopolk, Monomak, Alieg, and David was sealed with an oath and a kiss on the cross. Lots of cross-kissing today. Yeah. However, the Cubans were still a threat to the realm, and the small deviation to attack Alieg proved to the Rus misfortune, as the Cubans returned just outside of Kiev and ravaged the countryside, going as far as burning Sviatopolk's palace at Beristovo. Then, another band entered Rus, and they were led by Turkan, Sviatopolk's own father-in-law. Gee, what a nice guy. Yeah. Turkan led the band to Periaslavl and besieged Bonomak's primary seat. While the joint Rus army was making its way back to Periaslavl to defend it, Periaslavl decided it would be worth their time to continuously fortify their defenses. The Rus princes had managed to evade Turkan's scouts and made their way across the west bank of the Dnieper River undetected, and attacked the Cumans from the rear. When the Rus princes arrived at the scene, the citizens of Periaslavl rejoiced in happiness and sallied forth against the Cumans. Turgorkhan was assaulted on two fronts. Vladimir Monomak ultimately leading the battle, it was easily taken to victory, and had the added benefit of killing Turgorkhan during the fighting. Sviatopolk, however, grieved for the loss of his father-in-law, and buried him with honors along the road to Beristovo. Of course, this wasn't the only Cuban band that was coming through the region, as there was one led by Bonyak, another Cuban chief who we'll see quite a bit, as he led a raid through the suburbs of Kiev. He raided the monastery where Nestor resided, and I'll just read what Nestor had to say. Quote, After burning the monastery of Stefan and the villages of Germanus' monastery, they came to the crypt monastery while we were resting in our cells after Madden's, and they howled about the monastery. They planted two standards before the monastery gates, and we fled, some of us behind the building of the monastery, and others to its various rooms. The godless sons of Ishmael slew the brethren in the monastery and wandered about among the cells, breaking down the doors, and they carried off whatever they could find in the various rooms. Then, the set, then they set fire to the shrine of the Holy Virgin. Upon arriving before the church, they thus set fire to the south and the north doors, and upon making their way into the chapel near the grave of Theodosius, they seized the icons, burned the doors, and blasphemed against God and our faith. End quote. With that, the Cumans left laden with treasure and missing a chieftain. Well then, I have to say, I don't think uh, Sviatopolk, or sorry, Oleg, I don't think, I mean, here's the thing. I have a lot of Latino friends and immediately, like, when I heard uh, burning the shrine of the Holy Virgin, like, a shudder went down my spine. Yep. Um, Also, this is directly from the eyes of our chronicler, Nestor. Oh, he directly witnessed this. He he witnessed this. (laughs) Our chronicler's here. (laughs) I guess you know what that means. Uh, It definitely happened. Absolutely. Okay, I, I do actually believe it in this case if it's a first-hand account from him then i i do believe it 
because there's a lot of there's a lot of things in the primary chronicles where i'm like yeah that that didn't happen but i would believe nestor in this case yeah nestor is alive during this whole rule so he is witnessing these events firsthand yeah so for once he is writing the russian primary chronicles are writing about events that they witnessed themselves and were not being written down several centuries after the fact. Oh, yeah. So, guess what? Hey, we actually have good primary sourcing now. Somewhat. Nice. I mean, it's still Nestor. He was willing to just make shit up. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, with the chaos of the Cuman attacks, the Rurikids did what they did best and started fighting their cousins. There are quite a few battles, but surprisingly enough, Sviatopolk was not involved with them, and we will cover them in their respective episodes. But all of this fighting did lead to something important. Bring out the family tree. Now. <laughs> it's on the website. Use it, please. Unless you're driving. Don't use it then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Czar Power's branded family trees are guaranteed to make you better at driving if you look at them instead of the road. <laughs> yep. In 1097, Sviatopolk, Vladimir Monomak, Alieg, and David Svetoslavich invited their cousins... David Igorievich and Vasilko Rosislavich to meet with them at Lubech in order to stop the internecine warfare that the Ruhr kids were going through. Yes, check your family tree, Brendan, to see how they're related. During this meeting, the cousins discussed the incessant human raids and how it was in affecting their economies and how because of that, they were being led to attack each other for the sake of gaining cash. They decided to end all their feuding right then and there and form the pact on the way they would stop these parasitical wars. You know, if one person attacked the other, they would just gang up on the aggressor and kick their ass to bring the war to an end. They kissed the cross and gave their oath to not fight or try to kill each other, and headed back to their fiefs. Davidi Gordievich, however, accompanied Sviatopolk back to Kiev since his territory, Vladimir Volhinsky, was just to the west of Kiev, near the Polish border. During this trip back to Kiev, Davidi Gordievich was supposedly made aware by his men of reports that Vasilko Rosislavich had been conspiring against himself and the Grand Prince, Sviatopolk. Without looking for any further corroboration, David told Sviatopolk about Vasilko's plan and added the fact that it was Vasilko who murdered his older brother, Yaropolk, all those years ago. This is true, but David had no way of really knowing this at this time. Sviatopolk, however wasn't sure if these allegations were true, because there was no immediate evidence shown by Davidi Gordievich. All he had was his cousin's word to go of, off of. The death of Yaropolk had remained mysterious to him, and he never knew who had murdered him all those years ago. The Grand Prince looked to the sky and prayed to God to ensure that what David had told him was the truth, and if it wasn't, to punish his cousin in the way that only the Lord knew how. Looks like God is unforgiving God. <laughs> eh, it's more like, well, I don't know. Punishment is God's domain, not man's. Yep. This is when Sviatopolk decided to believe what Davidi Gordievich had told him was true. He wanted to believe his cousin had found his brother's murderer, and with that, the plotting began. David urged Sviatopolk that they needed to act immediately, because if Vasilko had had any chance to get the both of them first, then both Kiev and Vladimir Volhinsk would be lost to them. Sviatopolk agreed, and called Vasilko over to visit him in Kiev. Vasilko received the Grand Prince's message to come visit him in Kiev, and left Peremyshul, which is close to the western border with Poland at the time, and currently in Poland. Vasilko stopped at the Vidubici Monastery and set to pray, while his men set up camp on the Ruditsa River. During his prayers, Sviatopolk sent him another message, urging Vasilko to stay in Kiev, at least till Sviatopolk's name day came, which was months away. Vasilko sent back a refusal, as he could not afford to be gone so long from his princedom, as it would create a multitude of issues for him and his people, 
It is on the Polish border, after all. This message was followed a few days later by a message from David Igorievich, begging Vasilko to not leave and to listen to the Grand Prince. Vasilko refused yet again. The Prince of Perimichel's refusals to meet with Sviatopolk proved advantageous to David Igorievich, as it only proved his point that Vasilko had no respect for his power, and if allowed to return to his territory, he would work to remove Sviatopolk's territories from him. David Igorievich advised Sviatopolk to call his forces, and when possible, take Vasilko prisoner and hand him to David to deal with. Sviatopolk sent a message to Vasilko once more, letting him know that he understood his need to return home, and that he should at least meet with him once he arrived in Kiev, and that he'd make time in his schedule just for him. Also, it'd be perfect to visit David Igorievich since he was staying in Kiev during the time. To this, Vasilko agreed and made his preparations to go to the city. During these preparations, one of Vasilko's servants urged the prince to not meet with the Grand Prince as he felt something ominous in this trip. But Vasilko ignored the servant as he knew he was safe under the Lubeck Accords he and his cousins had sworn and kissed a cross upon. Ha 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 ha. Ha 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 ha. Ha ha ha. Yeah. The Grand Hall of Kiev was full of pomp and festivity as Vasilko entered. Sviatopolk came to greet his cousin and was soon followed by David. They came and sat down together and began their conversation. Sviatopolk immediately started by begging Vasilko to remain in the capital, at least until Sviatopolk's name day. But Vasilko had already ordered his camp to prepare to head home. Once the conversation turned to this, David Gordievich had found himself mute and his head full of brain fog. Sviatopolk noticed this and invited Vasilko to at least stay with him for breakfast the following morning. To this, Vasilko agreed. Sviatopolk excused himself for the time being, leaving David and Vasilko together alone. Vasilko attempted to talk to David Igorievich, but David remained tongue-tied and was sweating bullets. Time passed, in awkward silence, and after Sviatopolk had not returned, Vasilko decided to break the silence and asked where their cousin had gone. David finally spoke and said he'd go look for Sviatoslav, who was actually just standing off in the hallway waiting for David. Once David came into the hallway, Sviatopolk sent his guards and had Vasilko arrested on the spot, chained, and thrown into prison. <laughs> uh, every time. Classic. Oh, the old... I don't know. The the old Sviatopolk trick. <laughs> yep. yeah. Well, at least they did not bury him alive, burn him alive, or kill him en masse. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Actually, I don't want to say too soon. <laughs> <laughs> because this is Russian history. And it's like, well, at least they didn't burn them alive. And it's like, oh, okay, well, wait until they see whether or not they actually do, in fact, burn their enemies alive. <laughs> the following morning, Sviatopolk had assembled his boyars and the leading men of Kiev in his grand hall and had to inform them of Vasilko's arrest. He explained to them that it had to be done since Vasilko had been the one responsible for the death of Prince Yaropolk and especially on the charges that he had been conspiring with Vladimir Monomakh to kill him, Grand Prince Yatopolk, and take over the Kievan throne. So, David also had mentioned to Yatopolk that, yeah, guess Vasilko was working with Monomakh to kill him, and that's why he was probably scared. The boyars couldn't help but agree with Yatopolk, but, like him, prayed to God that the guilty party would actually suffer the penalty. Ha ha ha. Ha 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 ha. The church's priors did not believe Yatopolk, especially with the lack of evidence, and argued for Vasilko's freedom. Sviatopolk told the priors that since the whole ordeal was David's, was David's plan, then David would be the one to deal with Vasilko. Vasilko's face grew a grinch-like grin and ordered Vasilko to be blinded in the Byzantine style. His reasoning, 
releasing Vasilko would endanger both the Kievan and Volhynskian thrones. Svetopolk rejected the punishment behind the scenes, pushing David to show some forgiveness and let their cousin go, but David kept steadfastly refusing. Oh, we're happy through the script now. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that night, David and Svetopolk ordered their men to take Vasilko to Belgorod and to chain him up to a cart while they did so. Post-editing, Roberto, I am adding a content warning here because we have a blinding we go into very good detail about. So um, just look for the episode description where it says skip to here to get the the time slots for passing away from the blinding section. Thank you. On the ride up, Vasilko could see a few people, especially a Turkish man who was sharpening a knife. His eyes widened and he began to cry out incessantly to the Lord to have mercy on him, that he had done no wrong and he would repent for any sins he had made. The crying and praying continued and the agents took Vasilko into a small house. Vasilko attempted to resist, moving around so as not to be pinned to the floor. He was pushed down by several men onto a slab, chest first. His struggle continued, so the torque motioned for the Ooh. two heaviest men. Blood eagle. Blood eagle. Vasilko was restrained. Um, the movement, con- the struggle continued. So the Torque motioned to the two heaviest men to sit on Vasilko's back. With this weight on him, he was restrained, but a crack sounded through the, the room and his chest broke. The weight of the two men's and the slab beneath him had broken some of his ribs. Vasilko was in intense pain now, and he looked up and saw the Turk holding the sharpened knife. The last thing he saw was the knife coming for his face, but he managed to dodge the last second, instead of causing a gash to appear along his head and make him bleed profusely. The blood covered his eyes, and the two men held his head still, and the Turk stabbed his eyes, each eye coming out with a nice pop. Ah, oh, Jesus. And then laid still, as if dead. He was in complete shock, and the world around him was empty. <laughs> yep. Oh, we should have put a trigger warning on this part. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> oh, well. Russian history. Yeah. No, trigger warning for the entire show, Russian history happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, because we, once we get later, it's just like, yep, trigger warning for everything Stalin does. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah a Trigger warning for everything Beria does. Trigger warning, Beria is breathing in this episode. <laughs> Literally. Oh, God, I hate that guy. Um, anyways. Everyone did. <laughs> yeah. The agents loaded the unresponsive Vasilko back onto the cart and began their journey to Vladimir Volhinsky, David Gordievich's fief. Along the way... The cart stopped at the town of Zvizden, where a priest's wife noticed Vasilko's injuries and she went to immediately care for him. She cleaned the blood off of his face and noticed a gash that would turn into a scar he'd bear for the rest of his life. She removed his shirt to clean off the blood and began to pray for the man's soul, as his unresponsiveness gave him the appearance of death. Her prayers got to him and brought him back to the world, where he asked where he was, and for a drink of water, which to him felt like the ultimate nectar of life. Once fully conscious, he asked the priest's wife for his shirt, asking, quote, Where did you take it from me? I'd have rather met my death and stood before God in this bloody shirt. End quote. That's pretty cool. That's a baller quote. That's why I wanted to, like, say it, yeah. After this encounter in Zvizden, Vasilko arrived at Vladimir Volhinsky, where he was greeted by Davidi Gordievich. David, of course, was like a kid in the candy shop and lauded over his new prisoner. He's like, look at, look at Vasilko, look at Vasilko. I did this to him. He has no eyes because of me. He placed Vasilko under house arrest at the Vakayev Palace under heavy guard and gave him two servants to assist the poor blind man. It did not take long for news of Vasilko's blinding to reach the other princes, causing for Vladimir Monomak, David, and Alexei Svetoslavich to send envoys to Svetopolk saying, 
Why the hell did you blind your cousin without seeking the counsel of princesses? Princesses? Princes? <laughs> I wrote princesses. <laughs> Saying, why the hell did you blind our cousin without seeking the counsel of princes in accordance with the Lubeck Accords? Skatapolk responded by throwing David Igorievich under the bus and told them that David had uncovered that Vasilko had planned to usurp him and that he was the one to order his brother Yarapolk's death. Also, David was the one who ordered the blinding, not he, so he had no blame in the matter. The envoys were not having it, bringing up the fact that Vasilko was arrested in Kiev, not in Vohinsky, so because of that, he was at fault in the matter as well. With that response, they left the Great Hall. Mic drop. And uh, the repercussions of this whole blinding affair? The Rus did not like it one bit. Arrest was the usual way to deal with wrongdoers, especially those of nobility. Blinding enemies was a Byzantine practice, not a Rus practice, and was entirely unprecedented. I say this earned Compromat points for sure, because it was something that he did outwardly that made others dislike him. I suppose that counts. I mean, I, I mean blinding is particularly cruel, but I cannot say it's any more or less cruel than how they typically dealt with prisoners. Yeah, but usually you would just ransom off. It's like, all right, pay me pay me money, and then you get to go back. That's what usually happened, especially if they were like cousins or princes. They just blinded his, he just blinded his own cousin. Well, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. The, the, nobody in, so far, not a single person here has been averse to kinslaying. I'm pretty sure that's all they do, actually. Oh, yes, that too. Back in Periaslavl, where Vladimir Molomak ruled, Molomak and the Sviatoslavici drew plans for war. According to the Lubeck Accords, they had to attack Sviatopolk and Davidi Gordievich for their attack on Vasilko since they were the aggressors, but Anna Kumanskaya, Molomak's stepmother, or Anna Polovetskaya, use whichever one, and the Metropolitan of Kiev managed to convince the trio that they needed to concentrate on peace instead of and instead attempt to bring Sviatopolk to their side, since it was Davidi Gordievich who was a true aggressor in the situation. Anna Komanskaya, or Polovetskaya, would personally go to Kiev and talk with Sviatopolk. And we'll get more into details about this in Monomach's episode. Um, when Anna Polovetskaya arrived, she was greeted with full honors as befitted a princess dowager, and spoke at length to Sviatopolk, and ended up convincing the Grand Prince that if David was responsible for setting up the attack against Vasilko, then he, Sviatopolk, should join with his other cousins to restore order in Rus. During this time, our chronicler, Nestor, talks about his experiences in Vol- Volhinsk and in meeting with Vasilko while he was imprisoned. He manages to get Vasilko's experiences up to that time and the plans to expand Rus territory before he was blinded, and mentions that he had nothing planned against his kinsmen and that that was all just Davidi Gordievich's, you know, maldoing. And also, he does affirm that he was the one that killed Yaropolk. With no one to stop him in the meantime, Davidi Gordievich went to take over Vasilko's domain, but found himself confronted by Volodar, Vasilko's older brother, at the town of Bursk. David was quite scared of Volodar, and barricaded himself inside the town, and Volodar had no choice but to besiege the city. Oh, I have no choice. I, my hand has been forced. The, David did blind Volodar's brother. Yeah. True. Through a series of messages, Volodar asked why David had committed the crime of blinding his brother, and David Igorievich responded by throwing Sviatopolk under the bus, blaming the Grand Prince for allowing it to happen in his city, and that he only went through with it because he thought Sviatopolk would arrest and blind him as well. Yeah, because that was Sviatopolk's whole idea. <laughs> not. It was not. That was the only reason he had attacked Vasilko. 
Volodar believed the snake-like words of David Igorievich and told David that he would end the siege if a circle was turned over to him. With such an easy deal, David Igorievich handed the blinded Vasilko over to his brother Volodar. If the brothers reunited, peace was made. The following spring, though, Vasilko and Volodar could not forget about what had occurred because of David, and they attacked them. The brothers besieged the town of Sivoloj and captured it by storm. After the siege was done, Vasilko commanded that everyone in the city should be slain. David ignored the destruction of his city and instead concentrated on fortifying Volhinsk. It did not take long for the Rostislavici to begin the siege of Volhinsk. Messengers were sent into the city, saying that there were only after three men named Turiak, Lazar, and Vasily for the advice that they had given David that had led to his deception of Sviatopolk. Of course, this message was followed by an ultimatum. If the three men were given to Vasilko, nothing would happen to Volhinsk. However, if they did not, then the city should be prepared for combat and face what happened to Sievoloj. I can't help but notice that my feelings on Olga of Kiev killing everybody in the city and this guy killing everybody in the city are drastically different. Yeah. Because this is just like, yeah, just killing him for sport. Olga was like, well, you guys killed my husband. <laughs> hmm. The Volhinskians called an assembly and decided that Prince David Igorievich should surrender the fugitives. If they were after the prince, they would consider defending him, but for three of his lackeys, absolutely not. There is no need to suffer because of them. David Igorievich agreed to give up his men, but the three men very conveniently found a way out of the city and fled off to Lutsk. He mentioned this to the brothers who went to pursuit, lifting the siege of Volhinsk. While in pursuit, Turiak went to Kiev, while Lazar and Vasily went to Turiysk. The Volhinskians found out that David had lied to the brothers and forced him to give up the true locations or else the city would be immediately surrendered to Vasilko on his return. David Igorievich, fearing a revolt, told his cousins the locations of Lazar and Vasily. Once Vasilko found them and got his hands on them, they were hung the next day. Or they were hanged the next day. The citizens of Turisk burned the bodies of Lazar and Vasily, and amidst the smoke, we fly over to Sviatopolk, who has been really missing from his own episode, hasn't he? <laughs> he was making his way over to Brest in Poland to ask for Polish aid, as he needed more manpower to take down David once and for all. David Igorievich found out about the plan, and due to his proximity to Poland, jumped over the border quite easily and quickly and talked to Duke Vladislav, paying him 50 hryvnia, and proposed that they should work together to surprise Sviatopolk under the cover of night and with their forces, and make the two cousins reconcile. However, by this time, Sviatopolk was already in Brest and waiting to meet with Vladislav. The Polish army, in the meantime, was waiting at the Bug River. Vladislav told David to return home and to let Sviatopolk think the Poles were on his side, and at that moment, they would make a two-pronged attack. Well, David went back to Volhinsk feeling pretty good about his new plan. Sviatopolk had something he could much more easily offer Vladislav to help with meeting his goals. What do you think that was? I won't blind you. No, no, no. What what could he what could Shatopok give Vladislav more of? More of? Eyes. No, he gave him more money. <laughs> you know, he <laughs> you know, David paid the paid the Duke fifty, you know, fifty gold gold pieces basically. He's like, Yep, here's fifty gold. I'm gonna use your army. And then Shatopok was like, here's a lot more gold. Let me use your army instead. <laughs> uh Shatopok gathered the Polish troops and marched with them towards Pinsk, arriving at the town of Dorogobuz. Once his men and the Poles were gathered, he marched against David at Volhinsk. David was sitting smug in his palace, waiting for the Poles to betray Sviatopolk since he had paid them off. 
Seven weeks of a siege went by, and it dawned on Lavidi Gordievich that maybe the Poles weren't actually going to betray Sviatopol. With this knowledge and dwindling mor- morale and supplies, David anxiously asked Sviatopolk to give him allowance to flee the city. After receiving a pledge to do so, David fled straight to Poland. With Volhinsk under his control, Sviatopolk had two options. He could place a prince there in his stead, or he could try to take the lands held by Volodar and Vasilko. Which one do you think he chose? Hmm. You know what? That's a great question, Roberto. That is a great question. Uh, I think he probably went with the former. With the place of prince there? Oh, is that what the former was? Yeah. That, so, no, no. The other one then. The latter. <laughs> yep, of course he did choose the latter. <laughs> Wanting to add their territories to his land, citing that Paramishal had belonged to his father and elder brother, so it should belong to him as well. Volodar and Masilko found out about Sviatopolk's march against them and were furious with disbelief. How dare he, the person who they had just been told was going to aid them against a problem that he himself had created, now just turn into the problem? Vasilko reached out for a cross in his great hall, and Volodar handed it over to him. They met the Kievan forces on the field, on the Rojna plain. Vasilko had plans to remind Sviatopolk of his oath to keep things friendly and peaceful between the both of them, and how he had sworn to attack only David. Sviatopolk shrugged the reminders off. At this point... Vasilko pulled out the cross, lifted it into the air, and shouted after Voldar turned him in the correct direction, quote, Here is a cross upon which you swore. First you stole the sight of my eyes, and now you decided to take my life as well. May this cross be between us, end quote. Honestly, like father, like son, Izislav also broke us an oath made on the cross as well, so... Big no-no. That's a big no-no. Yeah, he broke the same cross. He broke the same oath. You know, he kissed the cross, broke the oath immediately. The battle commenced, and the cousins fought in an extremely violent manner. The Lubeck Accords were all but destroyed now that there was this battle after Sviatopolk's treachery. The fight had many casualties, and Sviatopolk fled from the battlefield, escaping back to Volhinsk, leaving Volodar and Vasilko the victors. Despite traditionally pursuing the troops in a route, Vasilko thought it best not leave their territory for the time being. In Volhinsk, Sviatopolk decided that it was time to look back at his first option, and he put his son, Mrsislav, as a prince of Olhinsk, and asked for his son Yaroslav to go meet with his Hungarian father-in-law, King Kalman I of Hungary, and request his aid against the forces amassing against him. Mrsislav was also joined by Sviatosha, the son of David Sviatoslavich, to help him run the city. Sviatopolk used his chance to return to Kiev, um, and the family tree does not have Sviatosha on there. My bad. Whoops. That's all right. Oh, well. I forgive It's you. okay. He, he shows up for this, like, one time. Yaroslav returned a few days later with a Hungarian army led by King Kalman I of Hungary, and they besieged Perimishal, while Voldar and Vasilko fortified himself within the territory. It was around this time that David Igorievich had returned from Poland and managed to sneak his way into Perimishal and leave his wife under Voldar's care. It seems that since Sviatopolk was attacking, all enmity against David Igorievich was gone for the time being. With his wife safe and sound, David Igorievich went to get reinforcements from a group of people who haven't been plaguing us for a bit. Can you guess who? Cubans. It is the Cubans. I mean, they, you say they haven't been plaguing us for a bit, but it's been one episode. In fact, it hasn't even been one episode. They were they were in this episode earlier. <laughs> yeah, I, I meant I meant like plaguing us like they weren't raiding for a bit in this episode. Yeah, right. David Igorievich met with our old friend Bonyak. And together, they decided to turn the tables in Volodar and Vasilko's favor. With David's 100 men and Boniak's 300, they divided them into three troops to attack the Hungarians with. 
Onyak made one of his retainers, Altunopa, head of the vanguard with 50 men. David was under the standard with the majority of the men, and Bonyak had the remaining 100 men. Remember Altunopa, please. He shows up again. Okay, so according to the Chronicles, the Hungarians had over 100,000 men, <laughs> which I do not believe at all, mm. but they're aligning corps, apparently. Altunopa attacked the first corps and shot their arrows at the Hungarians. The Hungarians moved to attack them, and the Cumans fled in fear, quotation marks. Sensing an easy battle, the Hungarians gave chase. Altonopa's forces passed in front of Boniak's forces, who attacked the Hungarians from the rear. Altonopa did a 180 and charged straight into the Hungarian lines, killing many of the soldiers. Those who survived attempted to flee or drowned in the river doing so. So just a traditional nomadic, you know, horse archer tactics, you know, attack, flee, then mm -hmm. kill. Yeah, hit and run. With the Hungarian army destroyed, Yaroslav Sviatopolchich was forced to escape to Poland for safety, while David Gordievich took the cities of Sutiesk and Cherven along the Polish border and looked upon his former fiefdom, Vladimir Volhinsk, and began a siege of his own. Mstislav Sviatopolchich shut himself within the city with his garrison and fortified it as much as he could. David continued the siege and made various assaults against the city to weaken its defenses. As its former prince, he probably knew every weak spot in the walls. This was then followed by incessant arrow fire, which the Chronicles describe as turning the sky black with the amount that were flying in both directions. Mstislav himself was up at the ramparts assisting with the effort. He spied David Gordievich on the battlefield, drew his bow, and collapsed on the ground. He had been struck by a Cuban arrow. His retainers grabbed him and carried him away, where he died that night. His retainers wanted to say nothing about the dead prince, just saying that he was recuperating, because he knew if they surrendered, Sviatopolk would enter the city and kill them all. They managed to send a message to the Grand Prince, saying, quote, Your son is slain, and we ourselves are weak with hunger. If you do not relieve us, the people will surrender, since they cannot endure famine. End quote. This message urged Sviatopolk to send his general, Putyata, to relieve Vladimir Volhinsk. Putyata marched the Kievan force to the city, and managed to make his way inside to the siege, where he found Sviatosha, David Sviatoslavich's son, with David Gordievich's envoys talking. Apparently, Sviatosha had entered into a pact with David Gordievich, promising to alert him of any incoming forces Sviatopolk would send to attack David with. Seeing Putyata, Sviatosha arrested the envoys and agreed to attack David Gordievich in the defense of the city. Just a lot of, like, back, you know, backstabbing going on here. The main Kievan force arrived around noon the next day. The siege was ongoing, but David Gordievich was having quite a nice siesta around this time. I guess he may have been a bit Spanish, I guess. <laughs> the Kievan force came upon David's army and immediately began their slaughter. David didn't know what to do until he saw the gates of Olhinsk open. He knew his pact with Sviatosha had come to fruition. David's army retreated to the gates of Olhinsk and dread soon came over them. The ramparts were covered in archers and an infantry force came out and attacked the retreating men, leading to their slaughter. David barely made it out of the battlefield alive. Puchata came in and, according to Sviatopolk's wishes, placed a man named Vasily to temporarily control the region. With that, Puchata returned to Kiev and Sviatosha went off to Lutsk. David, however, went back to the Cumans and met with our favorite Cuman, Bonyak. He hired them out once more and went to attack Sviatosha in Lutsk for betraying the pact that they made. However, this siege ended with an uneasy peace between the two men. Sviatosha was not happy with this result and went to Chernigov, where his dad, David Sviatoslavich, and his uncle, Alyek Sviatoslavich, ruled. 
With Santosha leaving Lutsk, Davidi Gordievich was able to take it over and started the march back to Volhinsk. The city of the regent heard of David's march to him and fled from the city himself, leading Davidi Gordievich to take over the city once more. So basically, people just keep running away from everything. This is a mess. This is a whole mess. <laughs> With this, Sviatopolk, Vladimir Monomak, David, and Alik Svetoslavich came together and asked Davidi Gordievich to meet with them. This time, no tricks. They just wanted to talk. Davidi Gordievich strutted into the room, asking the four men, saying, quote, Why have you summoned me? Behold, I am here. Who is this side of Savide with me? End quote. <laughs> this man's got some swagger. The quartet of cousins looked at each other and back at Davidi Gordievich as if he were being serious. Vladimir Monomak then answered, quote, You have sent us this message. I desire my cousins to come before you and complain of my wrongs. No. You have come before us and are seated against upon the same rug with your cousins. Why do you not accuse any one of us against whom you have caused for complaint? End quote. David was once again tongue-tied and stayed quiet. Sviatopolk, recognizing that David Igorievich would not speak, motioned for his other three cousins to leave alongside him and leave David there. Off in a private room, the quartet discussed the terms they wanted to set with David Igorievich. They agreed that David Igorievich could no longer have Volhinsk and instead it would be given by Sviatopolk, the smaller towns of Dubin and Chertorysk, while Vladimir Monomak would pay David Igorievich 200 hryvnia, and David and Alieg would together match the 200 that Monomak paid. They sent envoys to let David Igorievich know of what would happen, and then a bit later, Sviatopolk then felt bad for his cousin and gave him the town of Dorogobuz as well, where David Igorievich would die the following year. During this meeting, the quartet also discussed that Volodar and Vasilko should keep their fief of Perimishal, since they were the wrong party in this whole ordeal. However, Volodar would be his brother's keeper since Vasilko was now blind and could not care for himself. And with that, the war was done. Sviatopolk placed his youngest son, Yaroslav, as the prince of Volhinsk. The cousins were back at peace, and Sviatopolk received a message from Polotsk. Siesta the sorcerer had passed away. <laughs> the year was 1101, and this whole debacle that we spent the last hour talking about only lasted for eight years. <laughs> So strap in because we have much more to go. <laughs> With the Warren Cousins now done at peace, it seems the nephews of Sviatopolk decided that it was their time. Yaroslav Yaropolchic, the son of Yaropolk, Sviatopolk's brother who was murdered by Vasilko, decided to go ahead and attack Brest. However, he was quickly put down and captured and sent off to Kiev in chains. The Grand Prince massaged his temples and looked at Yaroslav Y, essentially saying, Really? This is what you do after we spent eight years at war? Grow up already. The Metropolitan then asked Yatopolk to take it easy on his nephew, which he did, as long as Yaroslav Y made an oath to not attack Sviatopolk anymore, which he also did, and things were fine. Sviatopolk, Vladimir Monomak, David Alieg, and the youngest Sviatoslavichi, Yaroslav, came together and decided that it was time to make an official peace with the Cumans to ensure Rus continued to prosper after the destructive wars they had gone through. The plan worked, and they managed to do a hostage exchange. Things were coming up Sviatopolk. That is, until Yaroslav Y decided that this was the time to flee from Kiev. Sviatopolk decided to send the only person he knew was fit for the job of this caliber. His son, Yaroslav. Oh yeah, we have a third Yaroslav this time. <laughs> However, Yaroslav Y wasn't the best of escape artists, so Yaroslav S managed to capture him on the banks of the Nura River and bring the nephew back in chains. At least this wasn't a destructive war. Nice. That December, Mrs. Vladimirovich, the son of Monomak, arrived with a group of Novgorodians to Kiev 
He had been ruling that land for quite a while, as he had been appointed about to the territory by Sievolod. This was going to change, because Monomach and Sjöthapok had come to an agreement that their sons could exchange territories to better fit the, the original succession plan. This agreement ensured that Sjöthapok could place his son as the Prince of Novgorod, and Monomach could place Mstislav wherever he wanted in his own fief. The Novgorodians were not having this at all, and the reason they joined Mstislav was to raise a complaint to the Grand Prince, telling him, quote, We were sent to you, O Prince, with positive instructions that our city does not want either you or your son. If your son has two heads, you might send him, but the fact is that Sievolod assigned us Mstislav as our prince. We brought him up as one of us while you left us in the lurch, end quote. I thought that was a really nice quote, because the whole two heads thing, you can send the VS two heads, because we're going to cut one off. This brought up an intense argument between Sviatopolk and the Novgorodians, and no leeway was made on either side. The Novgorodians left with Mstislav, leaving Novgorod out of Sviatopolk's direct control. The following year, Sviatopolk met with Monomak at Dolobsk to discuss what was going to happen with the Cumans. Peace had been going for a while, and Sviatopolk really didn't want to go to war, since it would ruin the lives of the peasants. Vladimir guffawed and said, quote, I am surprised, comrades, that you concern yourselves for the beast with, with which the peasant plows. Why do you not bear in mind that as soon as the peasants begin his plowing, the cumin will come, shoot him down with his bolt, seize his horse, ride on into his village, and carry off his wife, his children, and all this property? Are you concerned for the horse and not for the peasant himself? End quote. Sviatopolk was left silent and rose up, telling his cousin that he was ready for war. Monomach himself stood and added that repelling the cumins now would be the most beneficial thing for their land. They mustered up support from Chernigov, asking Alieg and David Sviatoslavich to join them in the fight. David accepted. Can you guess Alieg's answer? Um, I think he said no. He did say no, uh, citing that he had a stomach ache. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the Chronicle said he was sick at the time. I'm just saying he had, it was a stomach ache. Oh, no, no, I can't go. I have a stomach ache right now. I don't want to join you guys. Ah, typical Alieg. <laughs> I can't wait to do his episode. Uh, the three cousins united at Periaslavl, followed by a train of family members and retainers. This was going to be the fight of the decade, and they were taking it to the Cuman territory. They went by ship and on horseback, and arrived on the shores of Hortitsa. This was the same island that Sviatoslav I lost his head in in an ambush. Sviatopolk reflected on the ancestors' demise here. The Cuban scouts alerted them about the incoming Rus' army, and they gathered up their forces. A chief named Urusoba proposed that they should aim for peace, lest they suffer under the Rus' cruelty, due to the damage the Cumans had previously inflicted on the Rus' land. The younger chieftain shrugged off his concerns and scolded Urusoba for his cowardice, yelling at him that they had always beaten the Rus, and this army would be defeated by them again, and would give them access to an undefended Rus once they did. The two forces met on the field, the vanguard led by our friend Altunopa, who had helped David Gordievich earlier this episode. The Rus surprised the Cumans by sending their own guard ahead of them, and they crashed down Altunopa's forces, slaughtering him and everyone in the force. The Cumans saw their vanguard vanquished and sped out from the forest like a tsunami. The Rus prepared to defend themselves. However, something happened, and the horses began running in all directions, as if terrified of the Rus. The Rus took charge of the confusion and began slaughtering the Cumans along with the chieftains. At the end of the day, 20 chiefs were massacred, including Urusoba, who had wanted peace. They did, however, keep one alive, named Beldews. The battle was a major success. The Rus continued to capture the encampment and looted it for all it's worth. Their captive, Beldews, was brought before Sviatopolk, where the Cuman offered money and ransom either through gold, silver, horses, or cattle. Sviatopolk denied him and sent him off to the true commander of the army, Monomach. 
The Rus returned home, and on the way back, they stopped in the burnt remains of Yuriev, destroyed by the Cumans a decade ago. Sviatopolk restored the city to its former glory and made his way back home. The peace between the Rus and Cumans lasted for another three years and was broken when the Cumans had regained their forces and raided the town of Zarechsk. Sviatopolk sent Putyata to deal with the issue and managed to drive the Cumans out and steal the goods the Cumans had in the process. It looks like Sviatopolk's blunders from early on in his reign were coming to an end. Well, you know, you know we have one band of Cumans, Brendan? Yeah. What about a second band of Cumans? <laughs> Whoa, what? No. <laughs> yep. Yeah, man. Boniak, our good friend, made his return to Rus and raided many of the towns around Periaslavl, taking many of Monomak's horses at the same time. The princes came back together and worked to attack their foe. Their combined might caused the Cubans to flee from the battle, and the Rus went deep into Cuban territory once more, and this time raided their capital of Sharukan. The Cubans' force was slaughtered, with Boniak's brother being killed during the Cuban rout. The Rus made their way back home, smuggled with their victory over the Cumans and the capture of the capital. Peace now reigned in the princedom, and Sviatopolk founded the Church of St. Michael inside the Golden Tower, which was named after his patron saint. Two years after that, the princes attacked the Cumans once more and pushed him to the River Voin. Time passes for everyone, and a bit after Easter 1113, Sviatopolk had a cough and then another cough. He died on April 16th, 1113, after a bout with the disease and was buried in the Church of St. Michael. However, there are some chains of thoughts that he may have been poisoned. And with that, the rule is done, the prince is dead, long live the prince. Also, with the death of Sviatopolk II, St. Nestor ends the primary chronicle. We're not going any further with it since we've reached its chronological end, but we're still going to use it for a few more episodes. But just know, the primary chronicle is done after the year 1113. So, how was that? The, sorry, what? Did, 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 did uh, Svartopolk die? Are we done? Yeah, what? yeah he died. He's dead. <laughs> oh. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I really... Did, it's... I don't know. This is my nap time around afternoon. Oh, you're going to take a siesta as well? As, yeah. As uh, David Gordievich did. Dang. <laughs> huh, well, I was something. It was a long one, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's make it even longer. Ready to rank yeah. them? Special operations. How well did they do in battle, lead in battle, or have others lead in battle for them? I th- I think he did pretty well, I- as far as I can tell. Yeah, he he had a bit of a trouble at the start, um, but he was and he was always involved in a war either against the Cumans or one of his cousins. Mm-hmm. But you know, and he tended to lose battles pretty often at the beginning of his reign, needing to flee, but um, but tended to win them early on if they were led by, by Monomach or mm-hmm. someone that wasn't him or his immediate family. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, the easiest Slav line doesn't have much luck in that regard. <laughs> it's not luck, it's skill. Yeah. Um, but he did figure out, you know, that sending other people to do, to do his fighting for him was pretty good. Um, so he was able to, like, he was able to start winning at some points. Afterwards, mm-hmm. he's like, "Yeah, let me actually let me send someone else that isn't me to do this fighting because I can't do it myself." So he and he did manage to like beat back the Cumans quite often, which was more than what Sievold could do. Uh, two cities were raised to the ground under his rule, and then another one was um, actually no, yeah, and basically the inhabitants of one full city were basically sold into slavery. Right. Yes. So, what do you think about uh, point wise for um, Sievold two? Um, maybe a seven. Well, 
you know, I gave his predecessor a like a six because he only ever had Marmok fight for him, and he did the exact same thing. Or Putiata, uh, which is his general. Um, yeah. So he joined Marmok quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, but he did not seem to lose all that often. Just as I said, just at the beginning, after he he got his stride afterwards. Yeah. So it, actually, yeah, you know, a seven is fine for me. I'm gonna give him a five. Just middle of the road. I think he didn't do too well or too bad. He's just it was a mm-hmm. he lost some, he won some. He's just kind of middle of the road for me. So that is a twelve for Spitzadnapadatia. Success. How successful were they in running their nation? What cultural significance did they leave behind? Uh, cultural significance did not seem to come up in this episode. Oh, I'm sorry. He ordered the Primary Chronicles to be written. Oh, right. Yeah, never mind. Yeah. Um, that's probably a 10. That's a, probably a 10 by itself. Yeah. <laughs> we could not have this podcast without a, without this book, so... <laughs> How successful were they in running the nation? Um, I don't know. I'll field that one to you first, Roberto. Hmm. Well, I, I, honestly, I don't think he was that successful because there was a lot of, like... He couldn't control his cousins from going to war, and he also started a lot of them because he believed some of his cousins' lies. Um, so he caused a lot of warfare to happen. So basically, civil wars, because they were still technically for control of something. And then, you know, he they actually got, you know, they got together and made the Lubitsch Accords, which he then immediately broke by capturing Vasilko. So I want to give him a 10, but because he kept plunging, you know, Rus into war for eight years straight, He's, he's going to go down to like a six for me. I'll give him a nine, honestly. I don't care about any of that. I care that he wrote books. Okay. So nine plus six is 12, 15. With a total score of 15, that's uh, 15 in Uspiech. Compromat. Blackmail. What things did they do behind closed doors or outwardly that made others dislike them? I can't think of anything. Oh, you know. Uh, well, first off, he broke the Lubitsch Accords. Yeah. Um, by, which, you know, which is a pact between all the princes to not attack each other. And if they did attack each other, they would, the other princes would attack yeah. the aggressor. Right. So he broke that so, Kevin immediately. He killed Rusnado. Yeah. Kevin um, Rusnado and he is Russia, actually. Well, actually, Russia was never part of NATO, but whatever. The blinding of Asilko. That is major. Yeah. Like, people were, like, pissed. Like, when I mean pissed, they were pissed <laughs> at him. Like, and that was outwardly dislike. And I think that deserves a lot of points because this was like the first time a prince had been blinded on like another prince's orders. Mm. I mean, could, uh, let me ask, do you, do you think there's any way you could say that he had it coming? Vasilko, uh, I mean, somewhat had it coming, but the, the, the princes were like, we would have been fine with it if you actually you know if you brought it up before everyone else we could make past judgment on them instead of just going out of your way to do it and they probably wouldn't have chosen to blind him no they probably would have made him pay a bunch of money so like the you know the other princes outside of davidi gordievich and and Sviatopolk, they would have been like actually if you told us we would have gone together we would have talked about it and then we can go out and decide yes do what you want with him he is guilty but instead they're like you captured him without any actual evidence to the matter and then had you know your our cousin blind them for you, uh, and you know and Sithpok was mentioned to not be to be against the blinding, but he didn't do, as a grand prince he still didn't do anything to like stop him. And um, 
this is actually very apparent. This is actually a very different thing compared to like other Kievan rulers, because you can start to tell that the power of the the Kievan of Kiev is actually starting to decline. Um, it's mostly because of Sievolod, because Sievolod's place was so corrupt that everyone else is like, well, we have more power now because the Kievan you know Rus throne is kind of a joke. It's just mm-hmm. it's just the old it's just the best city in the nation, and the and the principal and the princedom, but um, yeah, so. The binding and the Lubitsch Accords were a very big thing that people were very pissed off about. Yeah, so I honestly think that would be another 10. I was thinking it's like an 8. Okay. Um, I think it was, it was very big. I don't think, but it's like, he he did decide. Oh, yeah, and he also betrayed people, like, constantly. So, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, I'm on your side. I want to help you betray. Yeah. So, like. He kissed the cross and broke it immediately. Yeah, so I'm going to give him an 8 for that. Because I think, you know, we've had people do worse. You know, Seattle, you know, Seattle solved the first, literally Vladimir the Great. It, Vladimir the Great, they, you know, Vladimir the Great was just a horrible person to begin with. Seattle solved the first, impaled a whole city. Oh yeah, he did do that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and you know, Olga burned, killed a whole city too. Um, yeah, burned a whole city to the ground, burned a bunch of people alive, buried a bunch of people alive. But they had it coming. We we defend Olga. We stand Olga here in, in our power. Yeah, she can do no wrong, my queen. <laughs> well, that is an eighteen for Compromat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, we, next up we have. Bojemoy. Oh my god! Basically, how good looking were they? Alrighty, so I have a few things here. Here is the Congress of Dolopsk, which is the meeting he, where he met with Vladimir after. He is the one on the me. Check my right. He is the one to the right, sitting down in blue. Okay. You have anything else? Yes. Here is a mosaic that's found in the mo- in the Kiev metro. That's interesting. Is he? Is this a like an icon? Was this guy sainted? No, no. This is just a mosaic in the in the Kiev metro. Okay. They they just have mosaics of their of the you know the, the grand princes of Kiev there. I see. Yes. And then this is the fresco from the Novospaskaya Monastery. Mm-hmm. I see. I mean, uh, a five. I like, I just, I have no strong feelings one way or the other. Okay. Yeah. Um, I th- yeah, I'm gonna give him a five. Middle of the road five. It's, it's, he looks like a person. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that is definitely a person. So, oh wait, that's a total of ten points for uh, Bojemoy. Sovereignty. How long did they last on the throne? How long do you think he lasted? I want to say he actually lasted for a while this time. I'm going to say 20 years again. Okay. Um, Sviatopolk ruled on the Kievan throne from April 24th, 1093 till April 16th, 1113 for a total of 19.92 years. He was off by Whoa. eight days. <laughs> I was off by eight days. <laughs> I would give you the 20. You, you got it right. Yeah. Cool. What do I win? I pat on the back. Cool. Thank you. I always wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, that gives him a total of 7.93 points. Um, and that gives him a total score of a whopping 62.93 points, putting him in fourth place overall. Right under Yaroslav the Wise. That's actually not too bad. <laughs> no, I suppose not. So, um, Brendan, is Sjatopok parasitical enough? Is he blinding enough to go party out in the Kremlin, or does he get shipped off to the Gulag? So... I think before I would have shipped people to the Gulag just because I didn't like them. But now it's just who does not bore me. And I certainly could say he was one of the less one of the less boring uh 
less boring princes on here. Honestly, I, I'd say that. Um, I agree with that. So what, what are your thoughts? Gulag or Kremlin? Well, obviously Kremlin. Yeah, um, I'm going to agree with you on that one. Um, I was reading this. Honestly, um, when I did my like pre-check on Wikipedia, I kind of see like, oh, how much information am I going to get on some guy, on this guy? And I was like, oh, yeah, two paragraphs, like two, three paragraphs. Like, oh, this is going to be a quick, quick episode. It's going to get the gulag. Got to the primary chronicles and the script ended up being 20 pages. <laughs> like, like total. So I'm like, oh, this guy is a lot. This is a long time. So, yeah, so I'm going to send him off to the Kremlin. So, uh, congratulations, Seth the Hulk II. You are being sent off to the Kremlin. Cue the 1812 Overture. So with that, uh, Brendan, what do you recommend for this week? This week, I'm recommending a band called Escuela Grind out of New York. I forget what city in New York they're from. Uh, whatever. So really great grindcore bands. I've been going to see shows at this local dive bar a ton. They put on a lot of free shows. And I just kept going. And I was like, man, you know, listening to Death Metal Live actually just doesn't sound all that good um but then they announced uh this band Esquilla Grind would be playing and I looked them up on Spotify and I really enjoyed them because they were uh a grindcore band that I think put a I don't know a little less emphasis on heaviness that a lot of metal bands do and put a lot more on speed and distortion and screaming their head off and I enjoyed it, and their songwriting was really good as well. I uh, wasn't able to see them because I forgot I ha- already had obligations on the day that they were going to play. But who knows, maybe they'll come by around again. I'd love to see them again. And I think their song Cliffhanger is pretty cool. Nice. Alrighty. Uh, my recommendation this week is going to be nice and sweet and short. It's spending time with your friends. It's great for your mental health, and you know who you have people there to support you. <laughs> I think you're cheating. I didn't think you had anything to recommend. I no, I wrote this literally on that Friday. I was feeling horrible. So, <laughs> um, if you're feeling lonely, don't wait to reach out to people. Reach out to them as well, so that you're able to spend time with them and make plans to. It makes things so much better. Yeah, to get more direct contact with us, feel free to access our website at zarpowerpod.com. There you can find the show notes, pictures, bibliography, and vote on whether you think Skyrothpulk deserves the Kremlin or the Gulag. It also has links to, on our social media, which is just at ZarPowerPod. Zar is spelled T-S-A-R. Brendan, where can people find you? Best way to find me is on Twitter at Foster underscore writing. I thought I would maybe move on to Mastodon or Blue Sky or whatever other alternative, but nah, it's the, all of those fizzled out as far as I can tell. Well, people are still in Blue Sky, but I don't think anyone talks about or cares about mastodon anymore no offense to people who are on mastodon or run mastodon it's not a replacement for twitter yet you can also find me on substack as invented organs as so inventedorgans.substack.com, where i write about all manner of things having to do with noise music or horror movies specifically body horror or um, body horror manga 
and contemporary political issues. For example, the last one I wrote uh, is titled The Meaning of Law and Order, where I argue that the only law and order invoked by the vigilante murder of uh, Jordan Neely on the New York subway is white supremacy and class domination. That is just one example of the kind of things I want to put out more of there on the future, and I try to put something out every Friday at the very least. Um, you can also find my noise music project, which I also do dark ambient and probably other ambient stuff in the future, Bargeist, spelled B-A-R-G-E-I-S-T, at bargeistmusic.bandcamp.com, where I just put out an album earlier this month called Eunuch Maker, and you can go there and you can read all about my thoughts about it. If you would like a free download of that, feel free to DM me on Twitter, Discord, Instagram, wherever you have me added, and you can also follow that project. I'll be posting more about it, future plans there, on Instagram at bargeist, as at just bargeist music. Again, that is B-A-R-G-E-I-S-T. All right, awesome. Um, if you would like to support the show and help us expand and grow, feel free to subscribe to our Patreon to get access to bonus episodes for Zar Power. We also have an Amazon book wish list, PayPal, and a coffee. If you'd like to do something that's free, leave a review on your favorite podcast host, be it on Apple, Spotify, or anything else that you use. I only really do check the Apple ones, though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's a Dosvinyan Tavarishi from me. And remember, Volos Poros Dayet Parazitov. Bye-bye. Have a nice day. Thank you.